This episode is brought to you by Morty, Buzzshot, Cogs, and Patreon supporters like you. Cogs by Clockwork Dog is an easy-to-use platform for running interactive events, specializing in escape rooms. They have plug-and-play hardware that seamlessly integrates with their software, so you can create a show with lighting and sound cues, all without having to write a single line of code. Map different kinds of inputs and outputs by building up simple logic steps which determine what you want to happen and when. Some of the best experiences in the world use COGS, including Phantom Peak in London and The Room in Berlin. Now I've been to The Room and they have the highest standards for immersion, lighting, sound, and automation. And now they're using the COGS platform with custom plugins in all of their newest rooms. The COG starter set is normally valued at $257, but our listeners can get the starter set today for only $130 with free shipping to the US. You can learn more and purchase your COGS starter set at COGS.show. Use code REPOD at checkout. That's R-E-P-O-D. Link and details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guests are Christian Vernon and Zach McCrell, the creators behind Doors of Divergence, the theatrical and deeply replayable escape rooms that took the New York City escape room scene by storm and will be closing for the time being at the end of October. Welcome, Christian and Zach. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I I didn't realize we had stormed. Uh, Yeah, no, you guys definitely popped off. I want to kick off this episode with a bold statement. The work that you and your team are doing with Doors of Divergence is, for me, the most exciting thing in escape rooms in 2023, and it isn't close. I'm very excited for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been weird work, but we've really enjoyed doing it. It's very weird, but very fun. David, you're giving me such FOMO. I I have been hearing about Doors of Divergence for almost a year now. And in my head, I was always like, next year, I'm going to hit up New York. I'm going to go. And then we heard that you guys had to close it down. And I was like, no, like I've been scrambling, trying to figure out how can I get out to New York by the end of October? Um, And if anyone else is out there, probably start looking up tickets now, because I'm sure by the end of this conversation, you will be trying to get out there as well. In the spirit of your work, I want to screw with the timing of our questions for this interview. Let's start with near the end of the conversation. At the moment, you have two games, Heresy 1897 and Madness 1917, with plans for a third game, Causality 1971. To the best of my knowledge, there is nothing else like what you have made. How do you describe what you're doing? This is something that we definitely had conversation at the very beginning of the exact same sort of existential question. How do you describe this in a concise way? I think that what we landed on was escape room meets immersive theater meets choose your own adventure novel. Those three combined. Our elevator pitch is kind of a mouthful. I think that is a really accurate description, except unlike choose your own adventure novels where you make a decision and you turn the page and it's just like, oh, you died. You guys, yes, and whatever decisions are being made and things branch into an increasing number of different options and scripts. And there is a lot of stuff that I have not seen of your games and I've played both of them twice. Yeah, a lot of that came down to when we were sitting down and writing the script, we had general ideas of where we wanted plot lines to go. But then as we sort of naturally wrote things and talked it out and role played it over the table, we realized, oh, we'd have a a point where an actor might ask a question and we had to plan for what if the audience does say the thing we're not expecting them to say here. And that would sometimes go into a little offshoot and work back in. But a lot of times we would go, why don't we just make a whole of the branch here? That'd be interesting. 
see where the variable storytelling space was. It was very iterative for a lot of the process, I think. Yeah, where we found interesting things we could do, where we found jokes that at most writers' rooms, I'd be like, ah, ha, ha, that's fun. And then we'd move on. We'd actually go like, yeah, but what What if they do this? What, what do we do? What if they refused this choice? We got to figure out something for it. And you have certainly figured out a great many things if players refuse or accept the choices. We're going to go and stop talking about doors and go back to the beginning of all of this. We'll come back to this. So, Christian, long before Doors of Divergence, you were the creator behind I Survived the Room at Indoor Extreme Sports in Long Island City. And I have to ask, how did you end up designing an escape room at an indoor paintball venue? Oh, man. Uh, And here starts the odyssey. I fell into it. It was very literally not something I was looking for. I had joined Indoor Extreme Sports as an ensemble player because I needed some side work and I had auditioned to be a zombie for their laser tag zombie experience, which was part haunt, part laser tag with a little bit of puzzly type things to it. But it was mostly an extreme haunt where the audience was given guns, get to run around, shoot you with, and it was full contact. So we had airbrush makeup on, we're running around, we have headbands on, and the players would shoot you and you would die, get up, and just continually do that for 30 minutes at a time. Living the dream. Oh, yes, precisely. It was it was absolutely something that pre-30-year-old me could do. It is not something I could do now. <laughs> Incidentally, he was in the best shape of his life. <laughs> oh, very much so. I, I think I was about 30 pounds lighter. And I think I the first two months that I was there, I, I, I dropped at least a stone. It was ridiculous. Okay, but are, are you like shambling around like you would expect a zombie to? Or are you one of those fast moving zombies? Oh, it's fast zombies. It is 28 days later, full screaming, running, jumping up on things, <laughs> jumping down on players, dying dramatically up against walls. Honestly, it was some of the best best stunt and fight choreography training I've ever had in my life because it's die dramatically, get up, do it again, but do it safely every time. Anyway, so we were doing that and this was in 2015. So escape rooms were hitting their stride in New York or becoming a thing in New York City at this point. I think Escape the Room NYC was there and a couple of other places. Yeah, there were a bunch in New York at the time. Yeah, it was certainly still in the, it felt like it was in the era of find note find key, unlock thing, go find other note, go find other key. That was felt like generally where it was. But again, I was not an escape room person at that point. But the owners of the company of Indoor Stream Sports had decided that they wanted to get into the escape room space. And they commissioned the artistic director at the time who was running the zombie experience to build out two escape rooms. And he decided that he wanted to have actors in them. And those were the original version of the sanatorium and Club Escape. Most of the way through the build of those, he ended up leaving for other opportunities and they needed to bring somebody else in. And I had already had a creative director, artistic director background from Chicago, and they just hired me up from the ensemble. And they said, all right, great. You've been a zombie. Now we're going to give you keys to building, finishing these escape rooms. You've been a zombie, but now you get to have a brain. (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) They said, what do you know about escape rooms? And I said, I played Mist and Riven religiously when I was a child. Let's start there. Give me some money. I'll go play the other escape rooms in New York. We'll talk about what's going on. And we did that. I came in. We, we tweaked some of the puzzle flow. And then that became an evolving thing. Wait, had you played an escape room before then, though? No. Never. Never. <laughs> uh, uh, it was typical of 2015. <laughs> this is very forgivable in 2015. Yeah. So it was just figuring things out as we went. And I still, to be completely honest with you, my darkest secret is for having been in the escape room space for as long as I have, I have played a an embarrassingly low number of rooms. I don't think it's over 20 in, in my entire career. You've played some noteworthy ones, though. I do know that. Yes. There's a whole bunch of things that you just talked about that I want to break down. I want to read two key paragraphs that my wife, Lisa, wrote in her review of Sanatorium back in the summer of 2016. 
I'm not going to be able to do a Lisa voice. <laughs> we were incredibly skeptical of I Survive the Room prior to playing. They are part of a large indoor paintball company, a couple of subway stops outside of Manhattan. Their release forms weren't written for the escape room. They were all about paintball. At first and second glance, I Survived the Room looked like a cash grab from an entertainment company that had extra unused space in their facility. That assessment was dead wrong. Sanatorium was a ton of fun. It was immersive, intense, and the actors were excellent. It had a few of the most memorable moments I've experienced in escape rooms to date. Now, I have to add, the moments that Lisa was referring to remain some of the most memorable moments of my escape room career many years and a thousand games later. I'm curious how that review lands for you. I remember reading it and saying, yep, fair. I can't say for sure whether or not it was originally intended to be a cash grab. To be fair, they had a lot of warehouse space and they were looking to diversify the things. And that was a business model that would continue throughout the lifespan of indoor extreme sports. They would do axe throwing and they were doing curling curling stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there was constantly an attempt to add more things into the mix, a VR booth and these sorts of things. So I know that regardless of whether or not it was intended to be a cash grab, I was given the opportunity to turn them into something of quality and value and wanted to do that and essentially was given carte blanche to do so. That was incredibly clear. And the other thing that I, I want to ask you, since the game doesn't exist and I do not believe that you are using or probably will ever use the end sequence from Sanatorium again, can I ask you to explain the way that the end of that game worked? Yeah. So the end of Sanatorium, you would have to enter a crawl space through a small chamber and one player would have to go all the way to the end of a crawl space and find a gun. And it was a CO2 loaded paintball pistol and send that back out to the other players in the room. You would walk back out into the hallway and the final hallway the doctor, the antagonist would be standing at the hallway, threatening you and saying, you're never getting out of here. I'm never letting you go. At which point the players would just have to aim this loaded with a CO2 cartridge, but not with a paintball. Very clearly, there was no projectile coming out, but pull the trigger and shoot the doctor dead in the hallway and then walk through. And there was a little note that said that the key is inside the doctor's mind. And so you'd have to kill him. And I don't remember which version we were doing when you played. Either the key was around the neck or it was around a skull that was in the foyer. I think it was around the neck. Okay. I think we changed that eventually because we had some players that got a little too grabby with the doctor and taking things specifically off of an actor. This is why we can't have nice things. Exactly. It's the reason why there's a lot of design decisions that changed from the original version of the show. But yeah, you would have to kill the actor dead and grab the key around their neck and use that key to finally get out of the space. This sequence was incredibly memorable to me, and I will tell my story about this in the bonus episode. But I wanted you to share that, not because I think people should emulate that design in 2023. There's a lot of fantastic reasons why you aren't using that interaction anymore. But because I wanted to illustrate how unusual and intense your designs have been from the very beginning. No one was doing stuff like this back in 2015, 2016. I was imagining that you lead out into the paintball and now you got to fight your way through zombies. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> Only on Fridays. <laughs> From the very beginning, your work has honestly felt like a unique branch of escape rooms. You've already mentioned Mist and Riven. What were some of your motivations and influences that went into the way you designed this stuff? It's interesting. I actually, before I got into this, my main thrust of my work, this is going to feel like a very counterintuitive answer, but I promise it's not. I was coming from 
a four-year tour as the artistic director of Child's Play Touring Theater. I see the connection right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, weirdly <laughs> enough, I was coming into this from being a children's theater director. But what it means is that very early on in, in children's theater, you realize you have to center the audience. You have to center the kids, specifically the work that we were doing. We were taking kids' stories, adapting them, and turning them into full things. We would do a lot of guest audience things. And every time that we would take audience members or interact with them or play with them, it was always centering them in the main roles because that's just more interesting. What do you mean by centering them in the roles? Instead of letting the actors do the really cool things and letting the players watch, we wanted players to be doing the big final moves. So yes, there is a version of that show where it could have been another actor comes out with a gun and shoots somebody, but it felt like the more bold choice to go here. You want to get out? Take this gun, shoot them. You make the action, you make the choice. Bold is the right word. Yeah, bold is the right word. Dangerous is another word, but yeah, weirdly enough, it, it did come from an impulse to want to empower the audience in the same way that a lot of the work we were doing on a very different end of the spectrum, but the principle was the same, was empowering the audience in the sort of children's theater stuff that I was doing. So it's just the other side of the coin. I feel that. That's not surprising at all. David and I have talked a lot about how a lot of the requisites for children's playgrounds, you find all of those in escape rooms. So that's not surprising at all, actually. (laughs) We kind of had a philosophy as a company in general and that we believe that all immersive theater is just children's theater, but for adults. Children's theater with a bar. Yeah. Now, you do see instances where it is children's theater where there is drinking and swearing, which is different than children's theater that is built for adults. But the elements of play and the idea of let's craft a world and you role play and play with us sort of thing. And that it's all a shared DNA, really. You can get down to it. You can find some of the exact same principles. In fact, some of the same mechanics and games being done in children's theater that are being done in immersive. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms, haunts, and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its fantastic website experience, iPhone app, and its new limited access Android beta. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. We have got some really exciting news. Morty for Android is here. The Android app is now in private beta. You can find out more on the Morty website or through their Discord server. We know people have waited a very long time, but the feedback that we're hearing about the Morty Android experience has been fantastic. Access is limited, so this isn't something that absolutely everyone can use right now. But the fact that a beta exists means that a full release is coming. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. Before we move back to Doors of Divergence, Zach, I'm curious, how did you enter the picture? Um, In a very roundabout way, actually. I've been bouncing around the immersive space in upstate New York for about a decade at this point. God, I'm old. I worked for Six Flags. I designed along with a collaborator by the name Aaron Lambert, who's still up there in upstate New York doing great work. The Scooby-Doo Mystery Weekends for Warner Brothers. And that's kind of how I got into the puzzle space. Prior to that, I had been more of a theater person, never really designing puzzles or games like that. Uh, ended up moving down to New York, bouncing around down here, doing a couple different shows. Found myself as the creative director at the Jekyll and Hyde Club in the West Village. Towards the end of days for that, ended up through a person I had worked with and then worked for me at the Jekyll and Hyde Club, put me in touch with Christian, who was looking for a stage manager for I Survived the Room back in, oh God, this was like, what, 2018, 2019? Yeah. So what was the Jekyll and Hyde Club? So the Jekyll and Hyde Club was this hammer horror, although off-brand because they never pay for the licensing, themed restaurant in Manhattan 
There are two locations. And it had a lot of animatronic puppets on the wall that would play pre-scripted stuff, but also there would be an actor who could jump on and interact with the audience directly. They had a number of actors and performers that would just go through the space and interact with you and joke with the table. And they'd be vampires or mad scientists or fortune tellers or something like that. It's very heavy, comedic in nature with a lot of, like I said, trappings of that classic hammer horror stuff. Universal monsters, classic monsters, that kind of stuff. The big claim to fame was once an hour on the hour, they would bring Frankenstein back to life uh, in a big elaborate floor show that would basically just be a five minute show that ends with an animatronic doing a sit up. That sounds amazing. Is that around still? Unfortunately, no. It closed (sighs) in about 2022, I believe, due to some stuff that if you Google it, they'll tell you about it. I have been. It is one of those things that if you went to it in the last decade or so, it was sort of a, I see at some point this was probably something really magnificent. And beyond that, how good a time you had was heavily dependent on... The amount of alcohol you consumed. (laughs) How committed the performer was and how much alcohol you've had. Yeah, it was. Unfortunately, uh, I, I was there, uh, obviously, on the uh, on the downslide. There was only so much that could be done. We were dealing with uh, puppets not working and then the owner going, yep, we're just not going to fix it. We'll fix it eventually, theoretically. There was a whole second floor to it that never got opened again just because he didn't want to pay for enough staff to keep it open. It was a real tragedy the way it went out, but Sometimes these things just run out of steam. Owners lose interests, move on to their next thing. And uh, what was a New York institution goes bye-bye. Couldn't have put it better. Buzzshot is escape room software powering business growth, player marketing, and improving the customer experience. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, and Morty. Buzzshot now has integration with Repod sponsor Cogs for all of your technology needs. I am so thrilled to have Buzzshot back as a sponsor for Repod. You know, David and I really only put sponsors on here that we truly believe in. And I love what Buzzshot is doing for the escape room industry. Same here. I have loved these guys because they aren't just operating a business in this space. They really do support the community, whether it was the way that they rallied and provided tech to support virtual escape rooms during lockdowns, the way that they are present at so many different events in our industry, and also the way that they do a lot to really make sure that escape room news is circulating out into the world. They aren't just a company here. They are part of this community. Streamline your marketing and grow your escape room business. Repod listeners get a free trial and 20% off your first three months. Visit buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to learn more. Link and details in the show notes. Let's shift back to Doors of Divergence. I've been wondering why you chose to attack replayability as intensely as you have. Christian, you got to tell him. Well, uh, (laughs) David, you are partly to blame for this. I think it was the 2018 Transworld Room Escape Conference in Nashville. And I remember you giving a speech of some sort where at some point you had said that replayability is not something that's really possible in escape rooms. And at that point, we had been experimenting with some things with Sanatorium because it had evolved and changed since you had come through and played it in 2016. And we had already had two diverging storylines and were playing around with things. And I knew I hadn't really cracked it yet, but when you said, yeah, replayability is not something you're really going to find, like escape rooms, you can't really do it. I remember sort of leaning back in my chair and going, all right, 
that's a gauntlet. Let's pick it up. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah. So when, when we had the chance to take the rights for these shows, when Indoor Extreme Sports closed down, I knew that the very first thing I wanted to do was really attack replayability from a substantial standpoint. It's funny that is what kind of inspired you because at the time, I would say that my feelings on that are different now. Some of that is your responsibility, but some of it is also the economics of escape rooms are different than they used to be. Back in 2018, the games were just opening left and right. And as a player, the argument that I had posited from that stage was that escape rooms are opening so rapidly in most places that it doesn't really make sense for me as a player to go back to the same set and same space that I had just been to because there's another five games that open this month down the street from you. That is not necessarily the case anymore as budgets and level of quality have jumped up so much, especially amongst the higher level games. So I think that you are ahead of the curve on this. I think also in using actors, because even though like some of the first famous escape rooms were like trapped in a room with a zombie, you know, and there is a live actor. But a lot of times having an actor in the escape room, it wasn't really like interactive theater, right? They were maybe a game master or something like that. And so I think in these past few years, as we've seen more uh, immersive theater merging with escape rooms, now you're seeing options for that replayability, if anything, just to play with the actor, right? And you get a different experience then. But it feels like you guys are doing something completely different from that as well. Yeah, I agree. There was a point where there was a lot of actors in escape rooms where it just felt like this is a gimmick. This isn't something you have to have. It's just there so you can put the sticker on the tin and claim that you're different. We're both believers that if you're going to do something in a production, there has to be a legitimate reason for it. I mean, there are certain stories you should only tell in certain mediums, right? And if you're going to have an actor in there, it should very well center around or at least substantially use them in a way that changes the game and you couldn't possibly do it without the actor in the room. Yeah. I mean, both the shows just have huge moments in them that you can't achieve with anything other than an actor. Pre-recorded video animatronics, you would not get the same feel that you get from that particular sequence without it being a live person who you've been talking to for 30 minutes. Yeah, and I can vouch for your games having made very clever and moving and impactful use of performers. You also do use pre-recorded video very effectively. So what are some of the challenges that replayability presents? What are some of the challenges it doesn't present? Um, <laughs> shorter list. Yeah, our design cycle, I have to figure, is much longer and much more involved with any of this stuff, it's tale as old as time. Soon as you start adding that variability in, you change one thing that's going to cascade across everything. This is a little bit of reveal about Heresy at the very least. But one of the things we did, because Heresy was the first show we redesigned, was try and separate the two paths as much as possible with physical space. And that really helped, obviously, means that if we don't move one thing, it doesn't affect everything else. But with Madness, it's all in the same space. So you move one thing, the whole thing cascades. And that's really the biggest challenge overall is just making sure the whole thing hangs together. It's all cohesive. And you are not leaving too many red herrings for people or anything like that. Yeah, in your two different games, you have very different approaches to replayability. Heresy has two different paths. They have the same starting and ending place, but the entire middle of the game, and that's a large portion of the game, you have completely different spaces and completely different structures and different vibes and stories. It's all very different from one another. And I don't think that's a spoiler that is going to cause a problem for anybody. I just have a question about how the replayability works. So is it like in two visits, you could have seen everything or how many visits would it take to see everything? Do you think to see everything is, is tricky? I think heresy has four success endings and three fail states, but 
those still track over to chapter two anyway. So that really fail states they're just you didn't get as far along and therefore the universe is in a certain state. You can play heresy twice without ever seeing the same thing, because the moment that you walk in, you're given a series of choices and they're going to determine your path moving forward. But the name is right there. We do diverging choice trees. So the very first choice you make has the most impact because it will completely change. Heresy is basically two escape rooms packed into one, and you will either play one half or the other half. Can confirm. Yeah. And then there are two endings at each of those paths, all of them track into a different story in chapter two. Right now, that means that there are two discrete puzzle flows in Madness, but within those two discrete puzzle flows, there are two completely different storylines that play out. By the time you get to Madness, our ensemble of actors, every one of them knows all four, technically five scripts for the show, and they're ready to swap in and out depending on which show they're in. And everything is something because each track individually, although in Madness, there may be some repeat of puzzles. If you are on the same choice track from Heresy and you decide to go into the universe where the switch was on or the switch was off, then you go to the universe where the switch is on, it's going to have the same puzzle track as the switch is off, as opposed to the universe on the other choice path, which is the switch was blue or the switch was red. <laughs> oh now, my blue God. and red are going to share a puzzle path, and on and off are going to share a puzzle path. But on both of those, each individual one has one-on-ones, has moments, has some pretty intense stuff. David, back me up here. The one-on-ones and the small group stuff that happen between the two paths are completely different. Completely and fundamentally different. And I have had two different experiences in both games. Madness... To get back to the difference in the structures here and to pull this all together, Madness, since it's all in the same space, you are making very interesting reuse of space, reuse of performers. You'll have the same performers in how many different roles or characters that people can be playing in this thing? They have five different characters that can be playing uh, at any given point. Yeah, You have all of these little details in the space that tweak the gameplay. And the first time I was playing it, I thought that your puzzle design was a little bit sloppy. It was a little bit janky with how it felt. And then I went back and played it a second time and I realized that what I thought was slop was not slop. It was very deliberately there to leave room to recontextualize the puzzles for the other path, which was nuts. Yeah. So yeah, the, the the two shows, ultimately the three shows, we're kind of playing from a top-down design level with different takes on what replayability means. Heresy, I think, is the most obvious one in terms of, okay, I pick this. Now I go down this physical path and I have a very different route to go there. As you play through, you can visualize the diverting choice trees, right? Uh, that's kind of how the space feels. By the time you get to Madness, yeah, we realize that everything's going to happen in the same space. A, there's a lot of stuff that Sloppy referring to. There are moments where it can feel a little red herringy until you get the proper context. But that was part of the design was you walk in there, there's a lot of threads to pull on, but you have to look for the proper context to find it. And the idea that by the second time you come through, everything feels familiar, but everything that you thought you knew is out the window. Now you have to look at it completely differently. The idea of, I know this place, I've been here, but it doesn't mean what I thought it meant, which is the reason why we did that for that particular show, is we're playing into the idea of you're going into a sanatorium. The title Madness is right there, and that's the theme of the thing. So the idea of like, I thought I knew what things were, but they're not what I thought they were, it just plays into that theme. We wanted people to be questioning what they were seeing the second time through. I think that... I thought I knew what was going on, but it wasn't what is going on is the thesis of that entire game. Yeah. And both of the endings that I have experienced in that have reinforced that. And I've heard tale of at least one other ending that I think maybe reinforces that even more. It's absolutely crazy what you guys have made. In terms of your performers who are exceptionally talented, hats off to them. How do they handle having 
five different scripts. Emotional crisis, mostly. Not knowing <laughs> which one they're going to run right up until the moment that they're running it. Yeah, that was an interesting rehearsal process. Uh, <laughs> I bet. So here's the thing. When we sat down to write it, and I, I'm, I'm sitting there uh, and I'm writing down narratively what's going to happen and what these lines are. The good news is that Zach and I both have extensive experience as performers as well. We're not going to craft this without a sense of what can a performer do and what's going to throw them, right? There's a lot of elements in Madness where things mirror each other and a lot of the same entrances and exits will be the same. So they know at the end of this beat, whatever story this beat is, I'm going to be leaving here, or this is the place where Reveal X happens. And this is the place where I substitute that in for this variant. There's a lot of shorthand and ways in which the structure repeats that kind of helps them remember in general how the show works. The, the shows have a, a general structure they can follow that is always the same. And it's just change the variables around, which certainly helps, I think. Yeah, sticking to that strong skeleton and only really breaking it to do something really interesting and memorable that you know your actor's going to be able to remember to do because this is the only time they get to suck the soul out of someone. They're going to remember that. <laughs> I, I'm going to remember that too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> like, how heavily scripted are they or how much leeway do the actors have for improv? This comes down to the, the nature of immersive. They have full scripts and they're pretty much completely off book. If you have an audience that comes in and wants to just watch and be completely passive and just nod or say yes or no when they are prompted to, you will get the script pretty much exactly as written. Mm -hmm. However, that very seldom happens and we don't really want that to happen. We want audiences to play along and interact with. So they are given full leeway to riff and if somebody says something respond it you never want to just ignore or deny and depending on the moment you just need to jujitsu it right you take it take the energy and then find your way back to the path but there are plenty of times in which they will remember something and ad lib later and that's the merit too of having the cast that we do is we have a cast that has a strong background in improvisation and immersive I think, Zach, about half of our actors have had some sort of background in Ren Fairs, which... Yeah, about, about half of the actors are, are folks who have been working pretty extensively in Renaissance Fairs and Immersive for, for years at this point. Which I honestly think might be our secret weapon. If you really need immersive actors, find somebody who has a season or two at least of a credible Ren Fair on their resume, and they'll have developed a lot of good skills. Just being able to run around, do crowd work, riff within a character, you'll see a lot of that. Before I even look at the resume, I'll go, yep, this is a Renfair actor, isn't it? Yep, got it. You, <laughs> get yourself a proper winch. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Or a bard. <laughs> so uh, presumably, and hopefully for my own sake, you are going to rebuild all of this in a new venue. Yes, rebuild is a, ideally not from scratch. We should be able to take the set and move it to another location. So are there any lessons or takeaways now that you have the opportunity to rebuild that you're going to implement? Yeah, I think there's a, some things we've talked about for sure. We have what we refer to internally as the Chivo system, where you do interesting things in the game. You'll get extra cards and rewards for doing things. We just like to acknowledge smaller choices that don't necessarily affect the story, but uh, are still things we go, I see you did an interesting thing there. It's been acknowledged. Collect the full set of Chivo cards. Oh, so like... An achievement. Is that what Chivo? Yes. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, they're not full achievements. They're just Chivos. Yeah. Exactly. Just a little, little Chivo. <laughs> some of them are really big things and some of them are really small things. Yes. Uh, we like to run the gamut with them. Now that we've had about uh, a year and a half of watching people interact, we've definitely seen that there are certain things that people want to do or do that we go, we should reward that. So I think we're probably going to end up Knowing us will likely double the amount of achievements that you can do running through all of the games because we've seen so many interesting things we've gone. That is so smart. And people like to feel seen, especially for a small little thing and to know that what they did, that little thing they did was noticed. These games, probably more than any other games I have played, make you feel seen. It feels like every stupid thing or intelligent thing that you might do in the game has some weight and you don't really know what the impact of that is going to be. 
And a little inside baseball on here. We didn't really understand how heavily people are going to embrace the achievement system. And it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen when we've had a group of people come through and they've lost. They're really down. You know, they had two puzzles left and they just ran out of time. And they come back out and they got this stack of cards. And I walk them through what they got absolutely turns their mood around. <laughs> That's great. It also has this interesting effect for me and a lot of the people that I play with at this point. They know the ropes in an escape room. They're going to go and play the game and do the thing. But the way that you encourage people to explore the space and explore interaction, it forces you out of those ruts of see puzzle, solve puzzle. Mm -hmm. And changes the relationship that you're having with the environment, the props and the performers. Now, do you know that you've gotten the achievement in the moment or is it until you come out that you're handed the stack of cards? We give them to you at the end. That was a decision made early on. We realized pretty early on that if we did it as an immediate response you would have players who go, oh, that's the game. And they would just sort of run around picking up everything and looking at the actor being like, is this a thing? No? Okay, let me try this. And just absolute chaos gremlins. It is something we've bounced around a few times. Where we've been like, should we just give it to them in the moment? But it feels like it will disrupt the flow. One of the early run-throughs, a uh, little story time, we had a much clearer explanation of the achievement system during the initial load-in. And we had one person do a handstand in the middle of each of the rooms and was confused why they didn't get an achievement for doing that. Wow. I, I feel like that kind of deserves an achievement. <laughs> if you've played the entire game on your hands, you should get a little Chivo. <laughs> I, I gave him a pin. I gave him a pin. He was happy. <laughs> I think this is one of the things, though, of some sort of interesting physical feat. We'll make it a, a larger category, but I, yeah, things like that. I think we're going to have some more catch-all things where we can just go, great, this is a more generic term that we've used for this, but just to try and catch more random things. You get the total weirdo achievement. <laughs> <laughs> so both of your games have some of the most artful delivery that I have ever seen of rules. You manage to maintain the magic circle and the illusion of the space, but still teach players how to play and do it safely. Can you help me understand the philosophy behind the approach to this? Oh, I'll start this one off. We hate being lectured. Standing there in front of a board attendant who is reading off a sheet of paper of things you already know because you've already got 200 escape rooms under your belt is not fun for anybody it's not fun after like your second or third game exactly <laughs> but also we recognized it as a point to start introducing people to the philosophy of choice especially the onboarding process for heresy is all choice-based you're given five cards which card calls to you and the sooner we can start introducing the themes of the game and the themes of the story we just went for that as you said it is a way to take something that normally would hurt the magic circle and turn it into something that reinforces the magic circle, that brings people deeper into the world. And frankly, also, it's a little bit of training on how to interact with the actor without us having to like explain, oh, the actor will talk to you and the actor will tell jokes. And if you say something to the actor, the actor will say something back. You're already dealing with one of the characters in the universe. They're already treating you the way you're going to be treated in the show. And you're warming up. So when the proctor asks you a question, you've already been talking to a performer for five, six minutes out in the bar, you're not going to lock up. You're not going to go, am, am I supposed to say something to them? And what am I supposed to do here? You've been doing it. It's super effective. We also like the fact that the, the orientations are structured around audience participation. It's not a passive thing. We can't do the orientation unless you interact with it, which draws your attention because this is about you, not about the rules. It's not about this third thing that we're discussing. It, it becomes about you. It's an evaluation. The first one is a tarot reading. So this is a reading of you as a group. So we're going to talk about you. The second one is a Rorschach test. Again, this is an evaluation of you and we take the rules and improvise with it, but it is about the audience. 
I think some of these principles were built out of a reaction to the way that Zach and I would have to do orientations for I Survive the Room at Indoor Extreme Sports, which, David, <laughs> I know you've experienced, where you're sitting at a counter and you've got a 10-year-old birthday party of 20 kids who are waiting to be checked in. You're hearing pop, 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 pop of indoor paintball and a bunch of screaming kids and whatever. And I'm standing behind a counter trying to explain the rules of an escape room. And maybe an attendant's going to walk by and stand right beside me and start Lysoling out the inside of the paintball masks and I'm trying to hold these people's attention and they can't hear me. I'm trying as, as hard as I can to be like, listen, you're not allowed to touch actors. These things are going to happen. If they say this thing, you have to like things that are imperative for the safety of the performers as well as for them and watching them just check out because I'm just reciting a monologue and they don't care. You just very much brought me back to the I Survive the Room experience. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, that That is, yep. We started learning near the end there that the more we could ask questions and make it more of a dialogue, the less that we would see them checking out and stop paying attention. And we realized that was sort of thing we had to hook on to was the more that it is a dialogue, the more it is interacting with them, the more that they will be right there and paying attention. So I'm going to shoot you guys straight here. Your website is super rough. And I say that knowing full well that Room Escape Artist needs a lot of work that it will be getting. What's the struggle with your web experience? I would recommend that people not use Ghost. Yeah, first and foremost. Yeah. We use it as a server specifically because it had a, um, a good sort of membership latch on program thing. And the way it publishes was simple and the way it uses handlebars is simple and what have you. But it honestly is something we haven't had the bandwidth for a lot of attention on. And it's the first thing that's going to get attacked on the remount when we transition over. I think you're going to make a lot of your customers very happy. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that Doors of Divergence does that I absolutely love is the way that you handle moral choices throughout your game. Typically, escape room moral decisions are something along the lines of, are you going to save the world? Or are you going to kill every single person in the world except for yourself? Your games do a remarkable job of staying out of judgment in moral decisions and even making the choices morally ambiguous and muddy enough that it's not necessarily clear what the righteous choice is. How do you go about structuring choice? That is a very good question. It helps that we have structured the story or stories the way that we have. I think there are certain moments where, especially in chapter one, the choice that you make, you're never getting out clean. There is always going to be consequences yeah. to what you have done because it's chapter one of a three chapter arc. So this has to be the inciting incident for the fuller arc. It's the end of the game, but there's always going to be consequences. So we try to create what is the most interesting thing here? What is the most interesting things the players can reasonably expected to sacrifice? And then we try to build out things in a way that's like, okay, there's a range of choices they will just never make. So we just X those and try to find the nice interesting meaty center of the sort of the choice spectrum. There was certainly a choice at the end of heresy that we ended up, I think, rewriting in the 11th hour because we thought it was just too cut and dry that sort of ends up retconning. Not really retconning. It's just whatever you think is right isn't necessarily right. And in that particular instance there, there, and the way we kind of wrote it made it a lot more interesting moving into chapter two. Yeah, and, that, and the muddy part was also very important. There are cues and there are hints on all paths that what looks maybe like the most straightforward choice maybe isn't. But if you're just focused on the puzzles and you're not reading some of the flavor text that we've been throwing in, you're not going to be able to pick up on that. It's also logical. When you do something like that, there's always the danger that somebody goes, oh, wait, like I didn't, I didn't want to do this. It's always clear that this might be what is happening, but especially if you get into like some of the hints, some of the flavor text, some of the things that are wrapped around other things, it becomes clearer and clearer that these choices, no matter where you are, might on the surface be the right choice, might in fact have a little bit of hidden depth to it. And obviously, we get to play that out in madness. I love that. 
I really hate when I'm in escape rooms and it feels like you're given a choice, but you're not. You're railroaded into the correct decision. And it's like, don't give me fake choice. Then just give me, <laughs> then just guide it along that one answer. These choices that you make, if you are engaging with what is really going on in the story, you are feeling the weight of it. There's always someone who's dying based off of a decision that you're making. <laughs> and the ramifications of that between games feel magnified. You do a thing in heresy and you're like, oh, I just did some bad things. And then you see what happens as a result of that later. And you're like, oh, I was really bad. I thought it was kind of bad, but oh boy, I was really bad. And the first time we played through, we were leaning into being bad guys. We were definitely trying to be agents of chaos. It emerged naturally. It wasn't a plan, but as much as we thought we were being chaotic evil, the game was just like, oh, no, you haven't seen chaotic evil. Wait until you see what chaotic evil actually looks like. It's a really cool trick. I hate to draw a comparison, but I think it's the easiest comparison is the Bioware aesthetic of your Mass Effect. You're like, OK, we, we knew that a lot of people would come in playing this going, OK, I'm either going to do the lawful good path or I'm going to do the chaotic evil. They were going to pick one when it was very clear that there was morality to the choices and they were just going to go hard in that direction, which I think is a way that a lot of people play sort of choice based video games. And there's certainly a lot of video game language in our games. It's a vocabulary that's, that's understood, it's well-established. We can adapt it to a physical space and people go, oh, this is a major choice point. Okay. It's why there's a basic red-blue color differentiation for a lot of it throughout chapter one, and then it sort of moves on from there. But we wanted people who went in to do exactly what you did and go, okay, we're going to be chaotic gremlins. And then you get to act two, you go, oh, I, I'm regretting my choices. And even from a meta level, that's great. Good. That's what we wanted. Oh, I had no regrets. I was no. just like, these, these are the greatest decisions I've ever made in my entire life. <laughs> oh, good. In that case, yeah, either you regret it or you feel rewarded more than you were expecting. Completely changing subjects. Christian, a while back, you and I were hanging out at the New York escape room meetup that Lisa and I organized. We both had gotten there quite a bit early. And you recommended a book to me titled... Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear by Margie Kerr. Mm -hmm. And I failed to get the book. But when I went to go play Doors the first time, there was a copy of it floating in time in the Paradox Bar, apparently left for me. So thank you for that. Thank your future self. I think your future self just left it behind for you. Oh, so. it was my future self. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. That sounds like something my future self would do. What was your key takeaway from Kerr's writing? There were two sections of that that I really loved. Uh, one was a section about Aokigahara Forest and specifically the idea of like death meditations and the idea of taking some portion of your life and regularly reminding yourself that you're going to die and thinking about that and using it as a, a way of overcoming the fear of our own mortality, which is... <sighs> One of these days, if I can figure out a way to do it that's healthy and not incredibly overbearing, man, I would love to do some sort of immersive experience that is sort of a guided death meditation. But it's only if I can bring in a psychologist who can talk about how you could do it in a healthy way that is, that is gated. I don't know if it's a good idea. If you ever it, want to experiment with that, call me. Absolutely. That and the idea of the work that she did at the name of its blanking on me now. It's Penhurst, I think, Penhurst Asylum that changed the show from being a little more mean and aggressive and taking a kind of punching down a direction towards medical and mental science and making it a more... You can still be frightening and spooky and scary and effective and not victimize your audience, which is the main thrust of the book, really. It's the basis of her work. And that, I think, was the biggest source of progression from the old I Survive the Room model to what we're doing now, in that the original shows, they were a product of their time, which feels weird saying something that was only in 2015, but they were meaner. They were a little more... They were built with a haunt aesthetic and a little bit more of an aggressive bent to them. And, you know, Club Escape, you got black bagged and you had a gun wave in your face. And that was the sort of thing that people were doing at that time. And it's stuff that we shied away from. And it was less about antagonizing the audience and making them feel scared and more about empowering them and making them feel like the heroes of the story. I think in general, that's sort of where the industry is going. 
I love that. You zeroed in on the same things that I really appreciated about the book. And there was a conclusion that Kerr had drawn that for me really stood out. And it felt like it was restating back to me the last 10 years of my life, which I hadn't fully appreciated. And the passage was, your brain is amazing at simulation, but there is no substitute for the tactile, physical sensations that come with experience. Even if it's just sitting in a forest by yourself, you never know what you might experience or feel. You don't have to hang off the CN Tower. You can start small. Try a new food. Watch a scary movie. Go ice skating, roller skating, skiing. Play a sport. Any sport. Do a handstand. Maybe three times in an escape room. (laughs) Or a somersault. Make your own adventure map. Start with lots of totally achievable destinations and activities and a few reach activities and save up. I have gotten more pleasure and fulfillment from walking around dark hallways and crawling through tunnels than I ever got from a new pair of boots. That to me is dating back to me the decisions that I have been making in my life since I found escape rooms. And it was interesting to hear all of that get pulled together, both throughout her book, but in that summation. That sounds almost exactly like in the interview I did with Kellen at the very end of that episode, I talk about my five keys for happiness. And if you do these things every day, this is a formula guaranteed you will live a happy life. And it was like, do something new, something a little different, even just ordering a new sandwich. It was doing something a little bit risky, making a a decision that feels like there are consequences. But doing these things will make you feel alive. And there's other things like communicating with others and having gratitude. I was reading that little paragraph that you just read out, David, and I'm like, yes, this encapsulates everything. And it made me realize all of those things are found in escape rooms. I think that's partly why you're so drawn to them, right? You're trying new stuff. There's risk there, but it's still it's a contained safe space still. I like that. Anyway, thanks for the book. Yeah, of course. I had a feeling you dig it. Yeah, it's it's a good recommendation. So as we bring all of this in for a close... You're closing doors of divergence because your venue, Future Proof, is shutting down. And I'd be remiss if I didn't take a second to roast the company named Future Proof for shutting. What does the future hold for doors of divergence? We are also trying to future proof it. We're looking for new venue spaces. We're looking for new partners. We are, thankfully, you know, through no small effort of your own, seeing quite a boost to our attendance and our sales, um, which is really going to help us out in getting things remounted as soon as possible. We are doing our best to stay in New York. We would really like to stay in New York. Some of the opportunities that have come across our desks are not New York-based, so there might be a move in the future, but at this point, it is far too early to say. Yeah, everything's on the table right now. And I know that you have a third game in the works, Causality 1971. Could we get a small teaser? How much do we want to peel the lid back, Zach? You know, we can give them a setting. We can get them a setup. We can give them one problem, I think. Okay, yeah. We really want to do, obviously, 1971, but it's a space station, but like Apollo-era tech. We wanted to feel different from a lot of the other sort of space settings you would find in an escape room. Buttony buttons and switchy switches. Oh, so many switches, so many buttons. But also, obviously, we're in a world where it is elevated sort of sci-fi, right? So we've been through a steampunk world. We've been through diesel punk World War One world. But the magic and the occult sort of exists in these things. The fun design challenge on that one is, what does the Apollo-era tech look like when it is supplemented with this sort of alchemy and magical systems we sort of created in the development of the other two shows. But we also wanted an, another exploration of this sort of replayability and choices of consequences. So while the meta level of it is, okay, I made choices, I go to chapter two, I, I made choices, I get to chapter three, the story is going to be completely different based on how you're getting out of it. We wanted to play with another level. So we will be structuring around the idea of a closed time loop. So you get the same story playing 
over and over again. So you have a more immediate feedback loop of, I made this choice, now I have these consequences. Oh, we didn't like that, go back, make new choices. So it, the, the idea of the theme and the thesis sort of evolving as you progress through. I wow. love time loops. Yes, please. You guys are adding even more complexity to your storylines. You guys are crazy. <laughs> what is the best way for people to follow your work or connect with you? Our Instagram is at Doors of Divergence. We'll also be doing some mailing lists and stuff once we close to keep everyone abreast. So if you go to the website, as rough as it is, go to doorsofdivergence.com. There's a little button at the bottom that says a uh, little mail token thing. You can subscribe to the mailing list. We'll do that while, uh, once we close down just to keep everyone abreast of what's going on, as well as some little other content and stuff in, in the meantime to, to bridge the gap. And if somebody thinks that they have investment or a venue that might be helpful to you guys, what is the best way for them to reach you? Contact at doorsofdivergence.com. Make it happen, people. And preferably keep it in New York. I'll be happy if it lands anywhere, but I'll be really happy if it stays in New York. We very much want to keep it in, in the city. We obviously, we both love it here. We're, we both really think that the, the New York scene is someplace that's really ready for something like Doors. We agree at Room Escape Artist. <laughs> and Doors of Divergence will be closing their doors on October 29th, right? So get your tickets, go play this before they close. I'm trying to encourage everyone, even though I'm like... I got to get out there, but here's your last chance. It's worth it. Play it twice. That's my advice. Christian, Zach, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing all of these insights into the process and the very unusual ways that you have been making escape experiences. Thank you for having us. I, it's it's wild. I've been listening to this podcast since its inception, so it's very weird to be here actually talking to you. <laughs> So glad that you were able to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening, by the way. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Teresa Piazza with support by Lisa Spira and Richard Burns. We're edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. Music by Ryan Elder. Logo by Janine Proct. And all of this is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. You've made it to the end of the episode. I'm guessing that you had a good time because otherwise you would have bailed. How about you go and take that good time straight over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Help other people find what we're doing. It really helps us out. And think about who you just helped out by helping them find a podcast that they're really going to enjoy. Go do it. Do it now. Thank you. Well, folks, it is that time. You know exactly the one I'm talking about. It's the one where the desperate content creator tells you, please, please join our Patreon, please. I know you hear it from everybody, but it means so much to us. The amount of time and energy and money that we put into producing shows like this to the degree that we produce them and all of the other things that we're doing, it's just takes a lot and our patrons every single one of them matters at every single level so if you have the money available and it's not going to be a hardship for you please consider backing us on patreon and if it is going to be a hardship please don't and backing us at the $5 level gets you access to the RIA Discord, and it also gets you our bonus after show. The show goes on for like another 40 to 50 minutes usually. A lot of times we have the guests joining us. I mean, that's, that's longer than that cup of coffee will last you. At the $15 level, you also get access to our Spoilers Club. Here, we take deep dives into iconic, well-known escape rooms, and we're joined by the creators who come in and gives us exclusive behind-the-scenes, director's cut-style commentary. This is some of my favorite content to produce because I love talking about escape rooms in full. You can learn more at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist link and details in the show notes. 
we'd like to thank our highest level patrons Panic Room, Escapism, Olivier Escape, Jonathan Driscoll, Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Joshua Rosenfeld, Byron Delmonico, Keystone Escape Games, Scott Olson, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, and the Ministry of Peculiarities. Thank you for your ongoing support. I think one of the funniest things that ever happened was back in the days of Club Escape, which again, I don't say it was a good room. Uh, it was a very different room. It was a very sort of aggressive room and tonally bleak. We split two people off and they went into a closet and they were locked in that closet. The other players had to get them out. That was like the first big step. And you went to the closet and it was a torture closet. It was where the Russian mafia had been removing fingers from people, blood and single hanging light and what have you. And we're very good usually of splitting couples apart. And we thought we had done so. And our actor is sitting there looking at the cameras and wondering why they haven't really progressed anything. And, and, and the, the six people in the, in the office are playing while the other two are not really doing anything. And they look up and they realize that their clothes were half off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were about to do things that were illegal for us to capture on camera without consent. So immediately grab and to much a design flaw for, from us, we were still using walkies at that point. The walkie was in the main office, not in the closet. So we had to get on the walkie and actually going, hey, can you tell your friends to put their pants back on? We can't. We can't. And as soon as they, they said that, the response from that group was, you guys, again, this was not the first time it had happened. <laughs> this is seven minutes in hell, guys. It's not seven minutes in heaven. I don't know what it is about a torture closet that makes you go, this is the time and place where we're going to do this. Yeah, anyway, so we ended up having to scrub those recordings for ethical reasons. <laughs> when you first described two people going into a closet to play a game, I was like, I've played this game before in high school. <laughs> <laughs>